0: Everyone, a happy new year, and welcome once again to the 50 years ago in hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and this time around, we're taking a look at the hockey news. And the news from the rest of the sporting world for the week of December 30th, 1969 to January 4th, 1970. And yes, we are now entering the decade of the 1970s and what a decade it will be. As we do every week, we want to mention our sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful Port Covern, Ontario. The Breakwall makes some of amazing craft beers. Many are crafted from recipes from a brewery that existed in Port Covern in the late 1800s. They also serve great food with delicious burger and pizza specials each week created by that amazing team in their kitchen. If you're in the Niagara region, You have to try the break wall. In last week's show, among the things we talked about were the situation with the Boston Bruins and a suggestion by a hockey reporter that the team would revolt against any edict that they all wear helmets. We also talked about Canada's national team enjoying some unexpected success against a touring Russia national squad. And this week, as one decade comes to an end and another's about to begin... Here's some of the things we're going to discuss. We'll look at a shocking game between the Russian Nationals and the Montreal Junior Canadians. Uh, We'll look at a Russian coach's view of the NHL style of play. And we find out about a new coach, at least for a little while, with the Minnesota North Stars. Of course, we're going to have the usual news and notes from each week and our hockey personality. Lots going on, so here we go. Now, as I mentioned before, I was a sports nerd when I was a kid. Uh, Right now I'm 18, going on 19 years old. And uh, one of the things that was going on at this time that was really intriguing to me was a, a situation involving baseball player Kurt Flood and the lawsuit he launched against Major League Baseball over the Reserve Clause, which is in every uh, professional sports player's contract at this time in history. Now, if you don't know what the Reserve Clause is, it was uh, a section in each contract which could bind a player on the team sports to one team for life. That's right, for life. Unless the player was traded or sold to another organization at the whim of the team he was employed by, He would have to stay property, literally property of that team for his entire life. Now, Kurt Flood was a very, very good baseball player. He was traded in a major deal during the winter of 1969-70 from the St. Louis Cardinals of the National League to the Philadelphia Phillies. Kurt wasn't happy about the deal. In fact, he was traded without his input or any type of uh, permission to make a deal like that. The the deal was very controversial in that the Cardinals were getting a really high-profile player by the name of Richie Allen, one of the most talented players in Major League Baseball at the time, but also one of the very most troubled. But the Cardinals were willing to take a chance on him, and the Flyers, in a major, I think it was seven players in the deal, got a bunch of players, the best of which was Kurt Flood. Now, Kurt made it known he objected to the trade. He suggested that he was going to retire from the sport if the trade wouldn't be uh, rescinded. Uh, this couldn't happen in baseball. Uh, when trades are made, they're deals, but they're a big deal to the observers of the sport. They make a lot of headlines, and this was one of the bigger ones uh, around this part uh, point in time in history of baseball. So when Kurt Flood says, I'm not going as a result of being traded, many players had in the past, it raised a few eyebrows. When he said, I'm going to retire, and then launches a lawsuit, that was major news. Now, many of the writers at this time commented on Flood's reluctance to support or to report to Philadelphia, and many uh, were against Kurt's stance uh, really complaining about the audacity that the player would have to uh, confront Major League Baseball in this manner. Uh, the dirt really hit the fan when he filed an antitrust lawsuit against Major League Baseball in an effort to strike down that reserve clause and give the players some rights. Now, to make a long story pretty short, the way player contracts are constructed in all of major sports was changed by the better, uh, for the better, as a result of this lawsuit. Uh, It wasn't uh, happening overnight, and it took a few years for the players to actually gain the right for self-determination of where they would play and uh, even how much they would be paid. But in the long run, it was for the best, and it ended a practice of what was as close to slavery as anything could be at this point in time in history. Of course. The, the owners were worried about increased costs and salaries did go up, they spiraled, and there was much much wailing and gnashing of teeth over what the owners decried as what would end up with the end of professional sports. But here we are, 50 years later, and there are more sports teams than anyone ever dreamed of uh, 50 years ago, and the owners of these teams are making lots of money. You can tell that because every time a franchise comes open, it's bought or purchased or acquired in some manner for unheard of figures that would seem like a pipe dream 50 years ago. Kurt Flood improved a lot of professional athletes and everyone who plays their sport at a professional level owes him a great debt of gratitude. Kurt Flood was a very, very brave man, and he is to be commended for what he did 50 years ago and the effect it's had on sports right up to today. Now, starting off this week for the hockey news, uh, a game between the Montreal Canadiens, Montreal Junior Canadiens, and the Russian national team took place at the Montreal Forum, before eighteen thousand five hundred and seven screaming fans, and they saw a whale of a game, as the baby Habs bounced the Russian squad nine. To three. Now, this Montreal team won the Memorial Cup emblematic of the championship of junior hockey in Canada the previous spring. And at this time, it was bolstered by eight minor professionals who were playing mostly in the Montreal uh, system at the Voyageurs Farm Team, the new Montreal American Hockey League entry. Now, to be fair, the Russians were in the final game of their tour and seemed to be looking past this game more towards the long trip back to Moscow. Now, the Canadian's controversial coach is a fellow named Roger Bedard, who in a few weeks would dump himself into some hot water for other reasons. But uh, he had lots to say about this game. Now, you got to remember for years... The Russians had been crying for a shot at NHL opposition. But in this game, as far as Bedard was concerned, they're not ready for it. Bedard said, I've said an NHL team could spot the Russians five or even eight goals and still win. I think we proved the point last night. I think we also proved that we in Canada play the best style of hockey. The Russians are tough, but they play what I call parlor hockey. I'll tell you one thing. Any NHL team would kill this club. Now, again, we got to be fair to Rush in this. This team contained only seven players that played for the World Championship team uh, from last spring. Uh, they had two new goaltenders, a fellow by the name of Shapovalov and another kid by the name of Trechak. Trechak's only 18. Might have a future, but on last night's game or this game that we uh, are talking about, Neither of them look like their keepers. Now, the Canadians won this game with their forechecking. They forechecked the Soviets into the ice, forced them to make all kinds of uh, errors in their own zone. And that's something in the past we really haven't seen from the Russians. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about New York Rangers Scout Steve Berklicich, who said this was exactly the way you beat the Russians. And... Uh, He was proving this tonight. Now, another thing that the Canadians did in this game was uh, their defense was very mobile, and it was led by a young guy playing for the Montreal Voyagers American League team, Guy Lapointe. He controlled the play when he had the puck, which was most of the time he was on the ice. His first pass out of the zone seemed to confound the Russians, and it led to a lot of successful rushes, by the Canadian team. Another uh, player who played very well was goaltender Jimmy Rutherford. Rutherford is not a member of the uh, uh, baby Canadians, but he is a junior player with the Hamilton Red Wings. Jim played for Montreal during the Memorial Cup playoffs in the previous spring, replacing injured goalie Wayne Wood, and he led them to the Memorial Cup championship. He made several clutch saves A couple of memorable ones on uh, winger Vladimir Petrov, who was the best of the Russian squad. But the best player in this game, bar none, on either team was a fellow by the name of Gilbert Perrault. He's the junior Canadian smooth skating center and their captain. He controlled the game when he was on the ice and he scored two goals, picked up three assists. Now, he had two line mates, Robert Guindon and Rajan Uol, and uh, they also... Had two goals, three assists. Uh, that's Hul did. Gindon had two goals, two assists. The other Canadian goals were scored by Richard Martin, Bobby Lalonde, and Andre Dupont. Now, just before the Russian team departed for Moscow, the Toronto Star caught up with the coach Anatoly Tarasov. If you're a friend of a hockey in in the 1960s and 70s, you know who Tarasov is. He's a great Russian coach who was dismissed from the team for some antics he uh, committed during a nationally televised Russian game back in Russia, but was brought back as the Russians got closer to playing against professionals. Uh, The people who run the Russian Ice Hockey Federation obviously knew that Tarasov is an amazing tactician behind the bench and an incredible motivator. And they'd need all of his skills if they were going to take on the Canadian professionals. Here's what Tarasov told the Toronto Star about his views on North American and particularly professional Hockey. He said he took in a, a recent game between the Toronto Maple Leafs and the St. Louis Blues at Maple Leaf Gardens. He said the Toronto players, who won the game, skated very well, much better than St. Louis did. They had good puck control, did more and better shooting, and consequently, they created more scoring situations. In addition, of course, the Leaf players capitalized on the mistakes of the St. Louis goaltender, whom he did not name. He thought, too, that the St. Louis defense players were psychologically depressed by the easy goals allowed by their netminder. He thought it was surprising to see such weak goaltending in the NHL. Tarasov says, uh, to begin with, your hockey has a lot of merit. It's kind of a beautiful entertainment. In professional hockey, you have very strong men, athletes who are fit, they have strength and will of characters, and your spectators know a great deal about the game. Every person who's present in the arena or who watches on TV wants to be part of this entertainment. Teresa's is also impressed by the coaching in the National Hockey League, saying, I'm deeply impressed by the school of thought in professional hockey on the part of these marvelous coaches who have educated and developed the players. I like Canada's professionals because of their fine techniques, sportsmanship, good skating, and resourcefulness. And for this sport, they seem to be able to sacrifice everything the game. However, I'm not going to go into details on why the professionals are so good. As a coach, I must ask some questions. For example, why is it that professionals keep playing the, the same type of game year after year? Terasov says nothing seems to change and he wants to know why. He went on to uh, remark that to me, it seems that professionals are too anxious to get rid of the puck. In professional hockey, this eagerness to get rid of the puck is completely illogical. He also says, remember how many times you've seen this. A player skates to the blue line, shoots the puck and follows it in, never ever thinking about setting up a beautiful scoring play. This may be fine for a sudden surprise attack on the net, but when you see it repeated time after time after time, it becomes not so surprising for either the players or the spectators. They know what's coming. It's impossible to play the same game for years and years. Surely, the pattern of the game should be changed from time to time. In your game of professional hockey, you get enough scoring, but it's not satisfying goals to me. And personally, it just doesn't look as exciting. My impression is that in order to attain their final objective, which is to win, All the teams, except Montreal Canadiens, use the same methods. They seem to be content to stay with these methods forever. We've often said in present day, er, 2019, the NHL is a copycat league. Anatoly Tarasov noticed this. 50 years ago. Tarasov doesn't like uh, the fouls that are committed either. He says, Show me, please, where it's written in the Bible, which he means the rule book, that it is legal to stop an opponent with a stick or to fight him. He talks about a junior game he saw at Maple Leaf Gardens between the Maple Leafs, or sorry, the Marlboros and the St. Catharines Blackhawks. Tarasov says, This was a demonstration of wrestling and boxing on ice. It was not hockey. Fighting has become the usual thing in hockey, Tarasov remarked, even in amateur hockey tours. We have two games at Winnipeg. In the first game, there were three fights. In the second game, five. And again, fighting in Vancouver after that. Our coaches, he says, do not like this game. That's what uh, Anatoly Tarasov's assessment of professional and even junior hockey was in 1970 in Canada. Minnesota North Stars have a new coach, at least for a little while. He is player Charlie Burns, who was given the position of bench boss by general manager Ren Blair, who decided to take a step back from his job behind the bench in order to concentrate on his general managing duties. Burns is 33. He's a veteran player, and he has played, or sorry, has filled a coaching role in the past. Before the National Hockey League expanded in the mid-1960s, Charlie played for the San Francisco Seals of the Western League and for a period of time was appointed as the player coach for the Seals. He won't be player coach this time. Now, Charlie had this to say about his appointment. The fact that I've been through this before will help. It was quite an upsetting transition the first time. But having been on the other side of the fence now, so to speak, it should help me handle it this time. Now, Charlie has had a very interesting uh, history in hockey in his junior days in Toronto. In about 1955, Charlie suffered a very serious head injury, a fractured skull. In fact, it was almost exactly the same injury as Ted Green suffered during that stick swinging duel this past fall. Charlie missed a year while he was uh, recovering, had a metal plate inserted in his head, and then tried to make a comeback. This is where he first met. Ren Blair, who brought him out for a junior team in Whitby. Charlie kept at it, Blair showed faith, and he had a long and distinguished career in the NHL and during the minor leagues. And now, Charlie is coach of the North Stars. Now, the Minnesota Papers uh, had some kind of interesting things uh, the way they thought about Blair, whom they saw as a uh, kind of a dictatorial figure with the North Stars. They knew he was tough. They knew the players didn't like him, and some of them made a little fun of him. One fellow who was a very distinguished uh, journalist in in Minneapolis, but was not uh, typically covering the hockey beat, was a fellow by the name of Jim Klobuchar, He wrote for the Minneapolis Star, and here's what he said, had to say about Blair's move to move out of the coaching post. Uh, Klobuchar writes, the crucial dialogues of history have usually come to us third hand, leaving the public doubtful about what really happened and helpless to know what grand design it all portends there's no such dilemma in this second annual retirement by Ren Blair. I really don't understand what all the befuddlement is about. Blair's decision as reported was to remove Ren Blair as the bench coach for at least three or four weeks and to name Charlie Burns as the new interim bench coach with the title of special assistant to head coach in absentia Ren Blair. It grew out of an earnest soul probing conversation between Ren Blair, the head coach, and Ren Blair, the general manager. In hard-hitting fashion of the times, to tell it like it is, the substance of the dialogue was reported by Ren Blair in a new but polished role as special consultant on public relations to Ren Blair, the general manager, and still head coach. Now, if you're wondering who... uh, Jim Klobuchar is and The name sounds familiar uh, Jim was a distinguished journalist in, min- in Minnesota in those days And he has a daughter Who's kind of famous today Her name is Amy And she's running for President Of the United States Now this next story To the surprise of absolutely no one the National Hockey League Rules Committee rejected a motion from the Boston Bruins to make helmets mandatory for all NHL players. The vote was almost unanimous. One team refrained from voting, and that was the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that was a a move made by their general manager, Jim Gregory, and he had good reason. The vote was taken basically... By uh, telephone. Gregory said, I don't believe in voting for anything by telephone or letter. The only way you can change a rule properly is in a meeting. Jim said, I'd be interested in hearing different views from the people on the committee before making up my mind about helmets. Like we said, there was no surprise the rest of the teams turned this down. Now, Weston Adams Jr., the uh, chairman of the board of the Bruins who put forth the resolution, said he would continue his efforts to make the use of helmets compulsory. And early, he had uh, directed that all members of the Bruins uh, Central Professional Hockey League farm team uh, are required to wear helmets now. Now, Stan Fishler had reported, as we said last week, that there was almost a revolt by the Bruins players when management tried to get them to wear helmets, and that the leaders of this said revolt were Derek Sanderson and Bobby Orr. Sanderson was quoted in the story, Orr was not. Now, Bobby Orr writes a syndicated uh, column uh, throughout several newspapers around North America. Bobby actually doesn't write it. It's ghostwritten by Dick Beddows, uh, a well-known journalist for the Toronto Globe and Mail. But Bobby says he reviews every post before it's uh, circulated, and he has last right of reproval on, uh, approval on what Beddows writes. Bobby's column this week had this to say about helmets, and it doesn't sound like Bobby is so adamant against wearing the headgear. Bobby's column says... The move to headgear in hockey is overdue, as we in Boston well know. If Ted Green had been wearing a helmet in his stick fight with Wayne Mackey of St. Louis last fall, he probably would not have suffered a fractured skull. Bobby goes on to say, I suppose there are some reasons why most of us avoid skull protection. One player has said it's our vanity. We think if we wear helmets, we'll be considered sissies by our coaches and teammates. That was uh, in a story by Milt Dunnell in an interview with, or Frank Orr, I'm sorry, in an interview with the Leafs' Pat Quinn. Now, that stand might be valid, according to Orr. He says that Freddie Glover, coach of the Oakland Seals, has apparently asked some of his players not to wear helmets, but Orr comes around and he says, let's face it, if the governors instructed us to wear bonnets, we'd wear them, they own the league, and they run it, and their word is law. There is no sensible reason why helmets shouldn't be law. Many other sports, horse racing, football, car racing, even baseball, demand that the participants wear strong helmets to protect their brains. In hockey, there's constant danger from flying pucks, high sticks, and bumps into the boards. It shouldn't take Greenie's skull fracture to make that obvious. Bobby Orr coming out in favor of helmets. The biggest news of the week broke on Sunday, January 4th, out of Geneva, Switzerland, when Canada announced it was withdrawing from international ice hockey competition because of the decision by the International Ice Hockey Federation to forbid Canada from using nine professional, minor professional players at the 1970 World Championships being held in Montreal and Winnipeg. Global and Mail international correspondent Robert Duffy was in Geneva where the meeting took place. Uh, here's what his report had to say. It's the best uh, capitalization of the events as far as we can find. Canada withdrew from international hockey competition here yesterday and immediately lost the 1970 World Championships, which were to be played in Winnipeg and Montreal in March. The tournament will now be held in Stockholm, Sweden. Earl Dawson was the president of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, and he declared in a bitter confrontation with IIHF President John A. Bunny Ahern. We will not return until the rules permit us to enter a team that is truly representative of Canadian hockey so that we can play our best players as all of the other countries do. Gordon Jux, Executive Director of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, said that at about $400,000 has been spent in organizing and promoting the tournament, and he has no idea... How much of this money could be recovered? Gordon said that in Winnipeg alone, there would be $300,000 worth of ticket refunds. Dawson went on to say to Ahern, we're disappointed in your leadership. You had a chance to lead the fight against dictation by the International Olympic Committee, and you did Nothing. Dawson said everyone was running scared of Avery Brundage, the leader of the IOC, and Canada could no longer compete in international games under such conditions. Dawson said Canada. Will retain its membership in the IIHF to give whatever leadership we can, and we will enter a team of amateurs in the 1972 Olympic Games. But we intend to question the eligibility of every other team and make ineligible any and all teams which have played professionally. Ahern, who had allowed reporters into the meeting to hear Dawson on the understanding they would leave immediately after he finished, changed his mind and allowed reporters to stay. But then he proceeded to describe Dawson as a small boy without experience. Dawson, whose home is in Rivers, Manitoba, is completing his first year as president of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association. Moreover, Ahern said, the CAHA is no longer in control of amateur hockey in Canada. It has abdicated in favor of Hockey Canada, a professionally oriented group that includes even representatives of the National Hockey League Players Association. Now, Ahern's referring to Alan Eagleson, the executive director of the NHLPA. Eagleson would become very prominent international hockey scene over the next few years and he arranged the summit series of 1972 next week on this uh story we'll have reaction from around the world on canada's decision to leave international competition and now we get to the news and notes of the week lots going on again uh, we'll start with the Toronto Maple Leafs and this incredible injury jinx that they have. Uh, backup goalie Marv Edwards was injured a couple of weeks ago, got a knee injury. He's still in hospital, recovering from surgery. And now Johnny Bauer, who's played just one game this season, uh, he's hurt again. He's got a bad knee. Uh, he actually damaged cartilage and knee ligaments during a practice, and that leaves... Bruce Gamble as the last man standing in the Maple Leaf net. Now, Bruce is going to be able to handle the loot. We have no doubt about that. But who's going to be the backup? It looks like Serge Aubrey, who's the goalie for the Leaf Central League affiliate in Tulsa, was going to be called up. But here's the problem there. Just as he's getting his big chance to get to the NHL to show what he's done, what he can do, Aubrey suffered a shoulder injury. So we're not sure if he's even capable of playing, and we don't think there's anybody in, at least at the professional level, in the Toronto organization that they can use. Well, I have to stay tuned to see how this one uh, turns out. Maybe Serge Aubrey will uh, be able to sit on the bench, but right now it doesn't look like that's uh, an option. New Flyers, General Manager Keith Allen is keeping his ear to the ground, looking for trades to improve the team that has struggled this year. But he says uh, a deal that was going to take place with the Los Angeles Kings now probably won't happen. And that's because... King's general manager, Larry Regan, is reported to have suffered a mild heart attack last week. And right now, he's not talking to any NHL teams. He's been instructed to rest for a month in Hawaii. Now, the deal that was supposed to take place would have sent King's disgruntled defenseman, Bill White, to the Flyers for a couple of unnamed players or possibly a draft pick. The Flyers, then, were going to flip White to the Boston Bruins, for forwards Wayne Cashman and Don Marcotte. Now it looks like the Kings aren't going to be able to do any trading right now. Co- new coach Johnny Wilson and deposed coach Hal Laco, who's now the assistant GM, wield very little power within the Los Angeles organization or with owner Jack Kent Cook. So it looks like everything is on hold for that team. The Montreal Gazette, or more specifically, hockey uh, columnist Pat Kern, is reporting that Gump Worsley has told the Canadians that he is retiring. Worsley has been feuding for actually all season with coach Claude Ruel over playing time, both in practice and in games, and Ruel has grown tired of Worsley's act. He sent Ruel to the Montreal Voyagers of the AHL. Gump refused to report and promptly told the team he was through. Bob McDevitt of the CBC caught up to Gump and did an interview, which we have here, about Gump's decision. Didn't see eye to eye on the practice thing. Do you think that that was the start of uh, a falling out in your relationship that carried over to this year and led to you not playing as much as you'd have
1: wanted? Well, he's supposed to know all his hockey players, and he's known me for... Well, since I've been in a Canadian organization, I guess. And uh I never did like to practice. I admitted I never liked to practice. Sammy Pollock knew it. Blake knew it when he was coaching, Ruel knew it, and all of a sudden it became a big issue. Now I don't understand it becoming an issue. If he wanted to make it an issue, that's uh, was up to him. But uh I when a game was there I always played the best I knew how, uh, in the Minnesota game, I had a bad game. I was supposed to play the next game against Toronto, which was on the Wednesday. And when the Wednesday came, Rogie was playing. So I didn't say anything. It's his privilege to change goaltenders at any time, or even during a game. But he never gives you a reason why. This was, uh, you never knew what was going on. So that's the crux of the whole thing, was that you didn't practice
0: hard enough. They didn't feel you you were ready and they wanted to send you to the Voyageurs to,
1: to get ready? Yes, that's what he said, he says, uh, I don't think you're practicing hard enough, I don't think you're in condition, so I want you to go down and get an actual game with the Voyageurs who were playing the seven games in nine days, as I mentioned before, and uh, I just wouldn't report to the Voyageurs. The decision that you made, did it take you some time? At first, I believe, when they asked you to
0: report to the Voyageurs, you said yes, and then thought it over and decided no.
1: Well, I said yes to practice to get out of the office, so I could phone home to see uh, the wife and I had talked about it before and I knew when you're not playing and continuously not playing something is going to happen and I figured it was that they would send me to the Voyagers so I came home well I didn't come home after I talked to him, but I phoned home and I told her what had happened she said well I said I don't think I'm going to go I'm going to phone them back and tell them I quit she said it's up to yourself you know which is best and so I called them back and told them I retired
0: quick look at the NHL scoring race this week and we see that defenseman yes a defenseman Bobby Orr is still the leading scorer in the NHL now into the month of January and he's leading by a lot he's ahead of Phil Goyette by eight points scoring 11 goals 43 assists 454 points now Bobby uh, Had a bit of an injury this week, but it's not as bad an injury as people might think it uh, would be, and it's not his knee. Bobby's hurt again, but this time it's something that happens to most hockey players. He took a puck in the mouth, but this is the second time in about a week and a half. On December 21st, he had 10 sutures from a cut from J.C. Trombley skate on his lower lip. Then just this week he took 12 more in the lower lip when he was hit by a deflected puck. Now what is it they say about the great players? The puck follows you around. When you're in the middle of the action it always seems to find you. More injury news on the Bruins. Uh, Gary Doak, another defenseman, looks like he's going to be out for an indefinite period with a pulled groin. To replace him the Bruins have called up a Billy Spear, who's an off-season barber from the Salt Lake City Golden Eagles, to take his place. Our social item this week comes to us from Pittsburgh, where rookie center Michel Briere, who's made quite an impression in the league this year, had a little more jump in his step this week. He became engaged to his childhood sweetheart, Michelle Baudouin of Millardic, Quebec, And the couple plans to be married this summer. In the department of what could possibly go wrong, the Toronto Maple Leafs this week displayed a brand new 1970 automobile in the Maple Leaf Gardens lobby during a recent game. Uh, The vehicle was there as part of a promotional uh, advertising deal that Harold Ballard had set up. A couple of enterprising young men saw the car there and began selling raffle tickets on the vehicle. People finally figured out what was going on and these two fellas ended up being banished from Maple Leaf Gardens. I knew we'd be reporting this story eventually. In 22 games against Montreal since they came into the National Hockey League, that includes playoffs, regular season, the St. Louis Blues had only managed five ties against the Habs. Finally, on December 30th, they defeated the Canadians 5 to nothing, right in the forum. And the Blues were dominant that night. Now, this shows one of either two things. The Blues have really, really improved, and no one's disputing that. But more likely, this is a symptom of what's going on in Montreal this season. The Canadians are not good. They're falling on hard times, and poor efforts like this one are becoming somewhat commonplace in Montreal. No wonder Coach Ruel is so testy these days. He's been insecure about his job at best, and he's getting a lot of heat from the press, and as we saw from Gump Worsley, the players as well. A neat story out of Detroit this week. Uh, On New Year's Eve, Alex Delvecchio of the Red Wings, their captain, finally scored his first goal of the season after going the first 30 games without being able to put the puck in the net. In fact, in this game, Alex scored twice to spark his team to a 5-1 win over the Boston Bruins. Now, he scored the goals wearing a good luck charm on his suspenders given to him by Pamela Eldred of Detroit. Now, who's Pamela Eldred? Well, she just happens to be the reigning Miss America. The good luck charm she gave him, don't get your uh, ahead of yourself here, was a crown-shaped pin she wore inside her swimsuit when she won the Miss America title. And news from Manitoba, yet another amateur hockey player has passed away as a result of injuries he suffered while playing a sport he loves. Barry Moffat, 30 years old, died in hospital after a game in Soros, Manitoba. Barry slumped to the ice near the end of the game after being checked into the boards on Tuesday night. There was only two minutes left in the game, in fact, between Soros and Moscata of the Southwestern Manitoba Hockey League. Mr. Moffat never regained consciousness, and Dr. A.M. Grant said that uh, Moffat's death was caused by a fracture at the base of the skull. It seemed like an innocent play at the time, but Moffat was not wearing a helmet. Now, he had worn a football-type helmet a couple years ago uh, using that uh, apparatus to protect a broken jaw, but he discarded it when the jaw healed. Moffat, quite a popular guy in the area, was active in amateur sports since his childhood, and he was even the 1969 batting champion of the Manitoba Senior Baseball League with the Riverside Canucks. He owned a farm in the Carroll District about 15 miles south of Brandon. He leaves a wife and three children. Now it's time for our hockey personality of the week, and this week one of my favorite goaltenders of all time, Roger Crozier, then of the Detroit Red Wings. Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press sat down with Roger in a very extensive interview of which we've got parts. He talks to Roger about his uh the success of the Red Wings this season and how he seals the job of stopping pucks. In the National Hockey League, Jack started off the interview by mentioning the Red Wings' poor defensive record, keeping them out of the playoffs the previous few seasons. Now this season, Jack says the team's defensive record has improved, uh, and Roger's goals against record was much lower. He asked Roger to comment, and this is what he said. you got to attribute it to the whole team. Roy Edwards, the Wings' other goalie, has played well. The defense has played well. The forwards have come back. It's a funny thing. When you got a bad defensive record, the goalie gets the blame. And when you got a good record, it's a whole team. I believe it's the team both ways. If you got a good record, it's the 18 guys. If you got a bad record, it's the 18 guys. The idea of this game is that everyone is in it together. Jack asked Roger, how do you take the games now? Roger's always been a worrier, and uh, Jack was wondering how Roger's dealing with things these days. Here's what he had to say. Right now, it's hard to say. Right to this day, I'm not completely satisfied with the way I'm playing. I don't know what it is. It's better, though, under the two-goalie system than it was before. It relieves a lot of the pressure to not have to go back in two nights in a row. Before, If you had a bad night, say on the Saturday, you'd be up most of the night worrying if you're going to be that bad the next night. But things have changed a lot in the last couple of years. Barry asked Roger if he still had trouble getting to sleep after games. That's always been something Roger's uh, complained about. Roger says it used to be really bad the first couple of years. Without exaggeration, when I first came up, I couldn't talk on the day of the game i didn't want to talk to anybody i didn't want to be rude but i didn't want to be bothered by anybody you'd run into a friend and even though you knew him real well you just didn't want to talk to him you had nothing to say that's a hard way to go through life though it's a miserable way and i've tried to change Uh, a certain amount of that. Barry asked him, do you find that after a tight game, it's hard to get to sleep, especially since you can't unwind with a couple of beers because of your stomach issues? Roger says, sleep is the biggest problem. I have a hard time with it. I don't get to sleep any earlier than three or four in the morning. I'll tell myself, tonight I'll be able to sleep, so I stay up until two. Then I'll go to bed and lie there And tell myself I'll drop right off. And the next thing you know, it's four in the morning and you're still lying there. If I was able to drink something, it'd be a help, but I can't because of my stomach. I don't know if it's a blessing, the alcohol restriction or a curse or what it is, but I've got it and I got to put up with it. Barry asked uh, Roger, there's been more balance in the games uh, between you and Roy Edwards this season. uh, uh, Almost split down the middle. Do you like it this way? Rogers says, the way I look at it, there's one job to do, but it takes two guys to do it. It's worked out fairly successfully, I think. A lot of people feel that if you have a good game one night, you should be back in the next night, but that isn't necessarily the case. At least I don't feel that way. I think the rest in between games makes you that much more sharper, and I like the alternating system really well barry says that roger was one of the most outspoken goalies against the curve stick and last summer with the change in the rule that limited the curve uh, he wonders if roger's seen any difference Roger says, definitely. I don't know whether it's just in my mind or what, but there does seem to be a difference now. It seemed like there were a lot of guys in the league who couldn't shoot a puck until the curved stick came in, and then they started booming them all over the place. So the less the curve, the less effective their shots are going to be. Of course, with some of them, it doesn't make any difference. They could use a golf club and blast that puck. Barry addressed with Roger the fact he's now wearing a mask full-time, and he asked Roger how he liked it. Roger says, I'm not really convinced it's the answer, but it prevents a lot of injuries, and things have been going pretty well since I've been wearing it. I'll probably keep wearing it for good. I'm still not satisfied with it. I don't know whether it's just a matter of time, or what? Asked what he doesn't like about the mask, Roger said, well, I know all the time that I'm wearing it. It never seems to sit just right, uh, and the sweat always runs into your eyes. Roger uh, ended up the interview with an answer to a question by Jack Berry. What's the toughest city for you to play in? And Roger surprisingly said, I don't like to say it, But I think right here in Detroit, I like playing on the road more than at home. When asked why, Roger says, I really don't know. It's just a different feeling. That's our personality of the week. Roger Crozier of the Detroit Red Wings. So that's our show this week, folks. Uh, A tumultuous week in the world of hockey and sports in uh, early January 1970. And what do we learn this time? Well, we learned that Canada is mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore as far as international hockey is concerned. And I, for one, was really happy about that. We learned that Alex DelVecchio can score goals and that Miss America's good luck charm may have had something to do with his breakout game. We also learned that Bobby Orr, contrary to published reports, would wear a helmet if ordered to and that among the Bruins at least, there would be no revolt. We'll return next week with more news and notes from the world of hockey and sports. And some of the stories we're working on include reaction from around the world to Canada's decision to leave international hockey competition. We'll talk about a heroic act by an NHL player that received far too little uh, nor- nor- notoriety at the time. And we'll uh, learn about another puzzling injury to the Bruins Centre Derek Sanderson, and of course, we'll have lots, lots more. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our intro music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage and other musical pieces are added by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at 1969 hockeynews and on Facebook under the page 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We also have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Now, if you like good music and good conversation... Have a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole. Andy just finished the last episode for this season, and it's a good one. Every week, he he and a guest have interesting conversation and also write and perform a completely new musical piece uh, written during the interview. It's a lot of fun, and everybody should have a listen. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody, and we will see you next time. When the ice breaks!